This week, I read a news story from Monterey, California. It's actually about an event that occurred a couple of months ago on Wednesday, October 13th. This is how the article read. At noon, Monterey City Fire responded to a swimmer in distress call. According to witnesses, the 30-year-old man got stuck in a rip current about 300 yards out and was drifting away into the ocean. While some on the shore called first responders, three surfers heard the man crying for help and swam over to rescue him. When first responders arrived, the man was already on the shore, safe, uninjured, and grateful to the bystanders who saved him. I think it's interesting that when when accounts like this are written... It's very common for the reporter to focus on the mindset and attitude of the person who did the rescuing, but often to ignore the mindset of the rescuers altogether, because of course that's not important to the story. It doesn't in the end really matter. John Piper points out that that if someone saves you from drowning, you don't really care if he's joyful or gloomy when you're hugging your family on the beach. But Piper writes this, with the salvation of Jesus, things are very different. Jesus does not save us for our family, but for himself. Salvation is not mainly the forgiveness of sins, but mainly the fellowship of Jesus. If this fellowship is not all satisfying, there is no great salvation. If Christ is gloomy, Eternity will be a long, long sigh. But the glory and grace of Jesus is that he is and always will be indestructibly happy. Piper concludes with these words, the best thing he has to give us is his joy. His joy. You see, our Lord, who rescued us from our sins, he as our rescuer, is completely filled with joy. And he intends, as we'll discover this morning, that his joy become our own as those he has rescued. You see, joy is at the very heart of the gospel. As I pointed out to you last week in Luke chapter 2 with the announcement of the angel to the shepherds, he said this, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we celebrate at Christmas time, our lives as his followers should be marked by indestructible, unending joy. Over the weeks leading up to Christmas, we're considering what it means that Jesus brought joy to the world. We sing that carol often, but what does that mean that he brought joy to the world? Well, we began our study of joy last week by first considering the ultimate source of joy. Where does joy come from? And the answer is joy comes from the person of God. Scripture teaches that God is characterized by indestructible, irrepressible, unbroken joy. It's the unchanging perfection of his nature. 
this total joy marks all three persons of the Trinity. We studied last week that the Scripture teaches the joy of the Father, the joy of the Son, and the joy of the Spirit. Joy is the unchanging perfection of the nature of God. And because of that, we also looked at the unchanging reflection of His purpose. Because He is filled with joy, in keeping with His own eternal purposes, God finds joy in specific realities. We consider just a few of them. God finds joy in His own character. We learned that God says, I delight in my steadfast love. I find joy in showing steadfast love. We saw that he finds joy in his son. Repeatedly during Christ's ministry on earth, Christ spoke, or God spoke from heaven about Christ and said, here's my son, my beloved son, the one with whom I am well pleased. I delight in him. I find joy in him. He finds joy in his creation. He finds joy in his people. I love those images from the Old Testament prophets where it describes God's joy over his people as being like that of a bridegroom over his bride. He finds joy in repentant sinners. We looked at Luke 15 where three times the same point is made. God rejoices when a sinner repents. God finds joy when we love him and when we obey his word. That's the unchanging reflection of his purpose. So this joy, any joy, all joy, finds its source in God's eternal nature. But it comes to us, listen carefully, joy comes to us on this sinful, broken planet only in the incarnation of his Son. The only source of joy in our world is Jesus and his gospel. God intended that the birth of his son would bring great joy. That's clear in the announcement that I mentioned a moment ago of Jesus' birth in Luke 2. But I ended last week by making this point, and I want to make it at the start of our time together today. Salvation isn't the end of our story of joy. At the moment you were converted, you experienced joy. But that's not the end of the story of joy for us. Now, we all understand as believers that that God sent Jesus into the world so that we can have joy forever, right? I mean, we, we all get that. We understand that. We'll have joy in heaven. We'll have joy in His presence, as Psalm 1611 says. We'll have joy on this planet renewed during the millennium. We'll have joy on a new earth forever. So we look forward to that joy. But sadly, many Christians don't understand that Christ also wants every single believer to share in his own joy, and here's the shocker, throughout our lives here. You see, Christ wants us to know joy not just in the sweet by and by, but in the nasty now and now. So having discovered last week the ultimate source of joy, I want us to consider the believer's life of joy. The believer's life of joy. Today, we begin to discover how Jesus' own joy can become the joy of his disciples. 
Now, as followers of Jesus, I think we all understand this intuitively, we ought to be known for our joy. Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, said this. He said, religion does not banish all joy. When the prodigal was converted, they began to be merry. Who should be cheerful if not the people of God? They are no sooner born of the Spirit, but they are heirs to the crown. William Gurnall, another of the Puritans, said this, and I love this quote. Christ takes no more delight to dwell in a sad heart than we do to live in a dark house. He takes no more delight to live in a sad heart than we do to live in a dark house. Martin Luther puts it like this, there is no sacrifice lovelier and more pleasing than a cheerful heart joyful in the Lord. But not only should we be known for our joy, but here's the, here's the truth, true believers, and by the way, I'm going to use that term true believers throughout my message. Uh, we saw that a lot in First John. Let me just define that. A true believer is not someone who merely professes or claims to be a believer, but isn't. There are plenty of those in the world. Jesus made that clear. A true believer is one who really is. So, a true believer will be known for his or her joy. Let's consider the certainty of the believer's joy. The certainty of the believer's joy. The true believer's joy begins in the gospel. Your joy, real joy in your life, if you're a Christian, you know when it started. You remember the day when you experienced real joy for the first time, and it was the day that you really understood and believed in the gospel. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is here laying out the kingdom parables it's a, it's a wonderful chapter, and Lord willing, after I finish Revelation in the morning, we're going to go to Matthew's gospel and work our way through it verse by verse, so eventually we will get to this chapter. But let me point out, in the middle of these kingdom parables, there are two very brief parables that make the same point. Let me read them, and then I'll comment on them. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, in both cases, these parables are talking about someone who has come to Christ through the gospel. The the, the two uh, treasures, the treasure hidden in the field, and then in the second parable, the pearl of great value, both of those refer to belonging to Christ's spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. So we're talking about belonging to Christ's spiritual kingdom, or as he defines it in Matthew 19, salvation. We could even say Christ himself. All of that's wrapped up in this. So the treasure is belonging to Christ, it's salvation, it's Christ himself. The pearl is the same thing. The difference between the two, by the way, is in the, in the first one, a man accidentally stumbles across the treasure. That happens to some people. They're not looking, and they, in God's providence, are confronted with the treasure. Others, 
because of the, the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts, they're, they're in this pattern of seeking. And they find the, the pearl of great price. But regardless, notice how when you find the gospel, when the Holy Spirit draws you through the gospel to himself, when he opens your heart to believe, to understand who Christ is and, and about the gospel of forgiveness in him, when you really come to grips with that and understand it, then you are willing to give up everything else to have it. That's the point of the two parables. That's what Jesus said, right? You can't be my disciple unless you're willing to give it up all, give all of it up. But notice the response of the person who believes. Verse 44, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has. That is how the Christian life begins. And if, again, if you're a believer, you understand this. Because on that day, when you really heard, you really understood the gospel, God drew you to himself through that gospel. On that day, you experienced overwhelming joy. That's how the Christian life begins. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul writes to the, the believers there in Thessalonica, he says, you received the word, and back in verse 5, he was talking about the gospel. He said, so you received the word or the gospel in much tribulation, but you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the believer begins his Christian life with joy. That joy continues in having assurance in the gospel. I love what Jesus says in Luke 10 when he sends the 70 out to, uh, to act on his behalf. And they come back after their ministry. And verse 17 of Luke 10 says this, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He'd given them very specifically that power. By the way, he hasn't given that power to every believer. The idea that you or anyone else can cast out demons is not in, a, in keeping with the Scripture. This was given to the disciples, to, to those he specifically designated. But they come back from this ministry filled with joy over their ministry. And Jesus understands that. Paul talks about joy in ministry. But Jesus then says this to them in Luke 10, 20. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's both the reality of election, having been chosen, written in the book of life, but it also is the reality of assurance that I am his, that my name is written there. That assurance brings joy. So, Christians, our joy begins with believing the gospel. But secondly, the true believer's joy will continue throughout this life. This is the certainty of it. It starts with salvation. It'll continue throughout our lives here. Why? Because it is characteristic of believers to have joy. Having started with joy, it continues. You see this throughout the book of Acts, but here's an example, Acts 2.46, talking about the church in Jerusalem after the day, on, day of Pentecost. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness. Gladness. That just follows Christians. Acts 13.52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
Turn to Romans 14. Romans 14, we spent, uh, I spent seven of the happiest years of my life in Romans. And uh, I don't know about whether it was happy for you, but it was for me. Romans 14, but look at verse 17. The context here is Paul is talking about issues of conscience. And he's saying, look, don't get distracted by exercising your, your conscience and doing what you want and thinking that's the main thing. So he says in verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, don't get caught up in thinking that exercising your liberty is what the Christian life's all about. It's not about that stuff. Instead, the kingdom of God is, is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two ways to understand those three qualities. Paul could mean them objectively. He could be talking about the righteousness that God gives us in justification, the peace that he gives us with God, the objective peace we have with God, and the joy that we have because of the hope of glory. Or he could mean those three qualities subjectively. He could mean a righteous life in which we treat others as God has commanded us, peace that we have with one another in the community of believers, and joy in living for others and not for ourselves. I think Paul intends both. But don't miss the larger point. He's saying that a believer's life, a person who belongs to Jesus' kingdom, is marked by joy. And all three of those spiritual blessings, notice, are increasingly ours in the Holy Spirit through His sanctifying work. So this is just the reality for a true believer. Richard Baxter writes this, I love this, I desire the dejected Christian to consider. Are you a dejected Christian this morning? I desire the dejected Christian to consider that by his heavy and uncomfortable life, he seems to the world to accuse God and his service as if he openly called him a rigorous, hard, unacceptable master and his work a sad, unpleasant thing. I love this. Listen to this. If you see a servant always sad that was merry when he served another master, will you not think that he has a master that displeases him? You are born and newborn for God's honor, and will you thus dishonor him before the world? What do you but dispraise him in your very countenance and carriage, how you carry yourself, how you behave? So the true believer's joy will continue throughout this life because it is simply characteristic of believers. But that invites the question, why? And the answer is because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. That is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in the life that he indwells is love and what? Joy. The fruit of the Spirit, including joy, is evidence of regeneration. I've often made this point with folks. You know, unbelievers who are pretending to be believers can copy some things. They can, they can put on certain behaviors and they can act certain ways. And, and for a time, people can think they're believers. But let me tell you what an unbeliever can never consistently do, and that is demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because it's contrary to his nature. An unbeliever is marked by the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. 
That's how you recognize them. So you get to know them. Well, they can put on a show at church, but you get to know them in their homes and their relationships. They're going to be marked by the deeds of the flesh. On the other hand, a person who has been regenerated has the Holy Spirit and will be increasingly marked by the fruit of the Spirit. That means, by the way, listen carefully, that the presence of real joy in your heart and life is a test. It's a test of the reality of your faith. I'm not saying you're uninterrupted in your joy. We're going to talk about that next week. But if you don't have true joy in your soul, if that's not what marks you, if you can't honestly say before the Lord that I know and experience joy, then you don't have the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. That's the reason for the certainty of a believer's joy. It's characteristic of a believer, and it's, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Let's consider, secondly, the categories of a believer's joy. The categories of a believer's joy. Here, I'm just going to give you some major categories. This isn't exhaustive. It's merely representative, but there's some major categories. We should experience joy, first of all, for the blessings of this life. Second Chronicles 7.10, the Old Testament people of God were rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to His people. They were rejoicing and happy of heart for the goodness that God had shown to His people. That's what we as the New Testament people of God should be as well. I pointed out, even unbelievers are glad and joyful in the blessings of this life. In Acts 14, verse 17, Paul's talking to a bunch of unbelievers, and he said, God doesn't, didn't leave himself without a witness around the world, and that he did good, and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, even pagans celebrate the blessings of this life, are joyful in them. How much more should we as believers be? Secondly, another category of our joy is our Christian relationships. Paul is such a powerful example of this in so many places, but Philippians 4.1, he writes, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy. Paul says, I find my joy in my fellow believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, who is our joy? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? One of the greatest sources of Paul's joy was his Christian brothers and sisters, and there are examples of it throughout the New Testament. Is that true of you? Listen, like Paul, our Christian relationships should fill us with joy. Thirdly, we should be joyful because of the spiritual prosperity of others. Scripture has so much to say about this. Let me just give you some examples. What you should be joyful about in the spiritual progress of others. First of all, you should be joyful when people come to faith in Christ. In John chapter 4, verse 36, Jesus is joyful when the Samaritan woman came to faith in Christ. And he says this, remember he talks about the harvest already being here, and he says in John 4, 36, already he who reaps is gathering fruit for eternal life. I think that's a reference to Jesus having seen the Samaritan woman come to Christ and to himself. And then he says this, he who sows and he who reaps, talking about the gospel, may rejoice together. Believers rejoice 
when others come to faith in Christ. Acts 15, 3, Peter reports to the elders in the Jerusalem church describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brethren. When we hear about other people coming to Christ, we can't help it. If you're a Christian, you rejoice in that. Secondly, we rejoice in their obedience to Christ. Their obedience to Christ. Romans 16, 19, the report of your obedience has reached to all, talking about the churches in Rome. And Paul says, therefore, I am rejoicing over you. 3 John 4, John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children, meaning his spiritual children, walking in the truth. We, have, we rejoice in the obedience of other believers to Christ. We rejoice in the stability of their faith. Colossians 2.5, I rejoice to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. I can tell you I experience that all the time in this church. I look around this church and I see people who are truly stable in their faith and it gives me joy. Their repentance from sin. Believers sometimes stumble into sin. Sometimes the process of Matthew 18 is initiated in which we have to go to that person and privately confront them and and go through a process of discipline. And when they repent from that sin, we rejoice. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. And we rejoice in the unity that believers have with other believers. Philippians 2.2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. That's just a sampling. A fourth major category of the believer's joy, and this one may surprise you, is our daily work. Our daily work. Last time I took you to Proverbs chapter 8. And as God created through his son, as he created all things there, he is described as not only doing his work in wisdom, but also God is described as finding joy in his work. Wisdom is personified in that chapter, and and so wisdom, an attribute of God, ultimately God himself is talking. Listen to what Proverbs 8 30 and 31 says, then I was beside him as a master workman, beside God in creation as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. That's wisdom, God's wisdom. So in other words, God found joy and delight in the world, his earth, and in the sons of men that he created. He found joy in his work. And brothers and sisters, in the same way, we are to find joy in our work. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes is a book that's written to tell us about the vanity of life in a fallen world. But even in the midst of a broken world where things don't satisfy and they don't fully deliver everything they promise, there can still be joy in our labor. Look at Ecclesiastes 2 verse 24. He's just talked about the vanity of work in that it doesn't fully satisfy. It's not everything you want it to be. It's not going to give you ultimate joy. Nevertheless, verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink 
and tell himself that his labor is good. Now, if you have a Bible with marginal notes, look at the marginal note for verse 24. The Hebrew literally says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and cause his soul to see good in his labor. Cause his soul to see good in his labor. Listen, if you have gifts, abilities that God has given you, and you all do, if you have a, a job in which to use those gifts and abilities that's, that's not a sinful job, that's something that's worthwhile, then you can and should find joy. You should cause your soul to find joy in your labor because God rejoices in his work. Look at verse 25, for who can eat? Or go back to verse 24, the second half of verse 24. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God, this ability to enjoy your work. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? In other words, enjoy your work, enjoy the fruit of your work, because this is from God. So you can find joy in your daily task. God delighted in his work, and so should you, Christian. A fifth category of our joy, and I just want to mention these next two because I'm going to come back to them next week, but a fifth category is all the circumstances of this life, without exception. Deuteronomy 12, 18, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. Here's the New Testament version, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. And and again, we'll look at that in more detail, but 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. There are no exceptions. We are to live lives marked by joy. A more specific category of our joy, number six, is all our difficulties and trials. Romans 5, 3, we exult in our tribulations. James 1, 2, we consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. 1 Peter 1, 6, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while you have been distressed by various trials. Now, let's just be honest with ourselves. This is the hardest category of all to be joyful. But as John Calvin says, there is nothing in afflictions which ought to disturb our joy. If we really understand how to process them. So next week, we're going to look very practically at how to consider it all joy, how to live in joy, not only in the middle of life's good things, but even in the midst of life's difficult things. So we've seen the certainty of the believer's joy. It's going to be a reality. We've seen some of the major categories of a believer's joy. Finally, I want us to consider the cause of a believer's joy, the cause of a believer's joy. And I want to sort of lead you through, uh, these, are, these are sort of building on one another, so stay with me. It's not that they stand alone, it's that they're going to build. So let's kind of build a case here. The cause of a believer's joy, number one, our joy is found in God. Our joy is found in God. As we learned last week, the ultimate source of all joy is God, so logically that means our joy must be found in Him. It's found in His person. I love Psalm 43, 4. The psalmist refers to God this way, God, my exceeding joy. God is my exceeding joy. 
And on and on the psalmist celebrates the person of God. Its joy is found in the character of God. Psalm 33, verses 1 to 4, begins by saying, I'm going to rejoice, and there are going to be shouts of joy. And then you get to the why, and it's because of your steadfast love, because of your justice, because of your righteousness. Psalm 90, verse 14 Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. We find joy in the character of God. We find joy in the Word of God. Psalm 119 again and again celebrates this. Psalm 119, 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever for they are the joy of my heart. Psalm 119, 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Just like in conversion, we found the treasure that is Jesus, and that brought us joy. As believers, we come to God's word, and we stumble on these treasures. It's like a spoil. Wow, I never saw that before. I never understood that before, and it produces joy. I I had that experience, um, I think it was yesterday morning, maybe it was the day before, I woke up from sleep and I had a moment of illumination. You know, I've been studying and thinking and working through a problem, trying to understand exactly how joy is produced in the Christian life. And it's like boom, 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 boom. Everything just fell right into line. These, these passages all sort of synced together and formed this. And it was, it was a beautiful moment of illumination. And my response was joy. Thank you, Lord. I understand that. I see it. I've never seen that that way before. Lord willing, I'll share that with you next week. But in the scriptures, we find joy. Our joy is found in God. Secondly, here's the next stage. Our joy is a gift of God. Nehemiah 12, 43, they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Psalm 4, 7, you, God, have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Joy is a gift from God. Number three, and this may surprise you, our joy is Christ's own joy. Turn with me to John And again, I'm going to touch on these passages. We'll look at them a little more next week. But look at John 15, verse 11. This is the upper room discourse. Jesus has just gone through the, the, the teaching on the parable, or rather the teaching on the vine and the branches. And he concludes it this way in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, now watch this, so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. Now, this is in the upper room, just hours before his betrayal, trials, crucifixion, and death. And Jesus says, my own heart is filled with joy. And he says, I want my joy to be in you and your joy to be made full. Turn over to John 17. This is the high priestly prayer, and Jesus comes back to the same theme. John 17, verse 13. But now, Father, I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they, that is my disciples, may have my joy 
made full in themselves. Jesus is marked by indestructible joy. You know, there's a misunderstanding from some Christians that, you know, when Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that Jesus walked around all the time, you know, living in a fog and, you know, in a downcast. That cannot be true. And I'll tell you why that cannot be true. Because that would have been a sinful life. Would Jesus have failed to obey the command to rejoice always? Would Jesus have known the fullness of the Spirit and yet have not have known the joy that the Spirit produces? Of course not. He was filled with joy. And God sent Christ into the world so that as believers, we can constantly partake in Christ's own joy in this life. He says, I want my joy, let's personalize this, I want my joy to be in you and in you and in you. That's what he's saying. I want my joy to be in you. Jesus, think about it this way, Jesus desires to give you, Christian, his own capacity for joy. But how does that happen? Well, this brings us to the next stage, number four. Christ's joy becomes ours through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how it works. It's through the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. But exactly how then does the Holy Spirit make Jesus' joy to become our joy? And this brings us to the key point, number five. Christ's joy becomes ours by believing God's Word. This is what the Spirit does. He opens our understanding of the Word. He gives us the capacity to believe that Word. And through understanding and believing that Word, we have joy. Jesus' own joy. Now, next week, Lord willing, I want to fully explain and and very practically apply this. I want to show you next week, Lord willing, very practically how Jesus' joy can become our joy consistently regardless of the circumstances we face. But today, I just want you to understand this basic reality. Here it is. You can only have the joy of Jesus to the extent that you know and believe God's word about your circumstances. Let me say that again. You can only have Jesus' joy to the extent that you know and understand and believe God's word about your circumstances, whatever they are. That's the only way you're going to have joy. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 13. This is a key passage. Romans 13, uh, 15, 13. Let me read it. Notice what Paul writes. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a benediction, and this benediction is the conclusion to this paragraph. It's the conclusion to this section about Christian liberty, and it is even the conclusion, the benediction to the entire body of the letter from what he began in chapter 1, verse 18, until the end. This is the benediction. It it bears a lot of weight. 
Look at it again. Paul addresses his prayer, notice, to the God of hope. God is the source of the hope that we found in the gospel. But notice his request. May God fill you with all joy. Paul prays that God will fill us with an inner sense of gladness that the Spirit produces along with peace. But, but notice the means of joy. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy in or by believing. You see, faith in God's Word is the only means, Christian, to joy. It's how the Holy Spirit produces joy in your heart. As you understand what God has said about your circumstances, and as you believe it, you can have joy regardless of what's happening in your life. 19th century British pastor Octavius Winslow wrote this. I love this. The religion of Christ is the religion of joy. Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open our prison house, to cancel our debt. In a word, to give us the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying, sanctifying joy in the gospel of Christ. From that, Winslow goes on to make this conclusion. The child of God is from necessity a joyful man. His sins are forgiven, his soul is justified, his person is adopted, his trials are blessing, his conflicts are victories, his death is immortality, his future is a heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, and endless blessedness. With such a God, such a Savior, and such a hope, is he not, ought he not to be a joyful man? Amen and amen. But how practically can you and I have and express Jesus' own joy, the joy he brought to the world in his incarnation? How can we experience that joy in our lives here in a broken world filled with difficulty and trouble? Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll consider at a very practical level how you and I can live a life of joy as Jesus did whatever comes, how his joy can become ours. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, forgive us for manifesting a certain measure of joy, but, but being influenced by the despair, the hopelessness around us. Father, remind us that in your Son you have given us his joy, that his joy may be in us, that we might have his capacity for joy in this fallen, broken world. Lord, teach us how from your word, even as we continue our study. Lord, help us to grasp the reality, the certainty, the importance of this issue as it reflects ultimately on you, our new master. Father, I pray as well for the person who may be here this morning who still lives in the darkness instead of the light, 
who still lives in the guilt and oppression and despair of sin as opposed to the joy of Jesus Christ. I pray that today you would help them like the the man in the story Jesus told to have stumbled across the treasure that is Jesus Christ, that is his forgiveness, his gospel, what it is to know you. And Father, may you open his eyes to see the treasure and may he or she be willing to jettison everything else to have Christ. Lord, do that work in their hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.